Thanks, Keith. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Kind of a privilege from Pastor Steve and the ministry here at Steadfast Conference. Invited myself to come and share with you God's Word. And I trust as we go through today together that God will enrich us through His Word and through His Spirit. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So you can give yourself to anything more important on a Saturday than the Steadfast Conference focused on worship. And uh, it's a joy for my wife and my two daughters, uh, Laura and Beth, to come along also. And uh, we hope that you're uh, edified and encouraged and, and focused al- along the way. Um, appreciate the Gettys a lot. As Keith said, we're uh, from the same city of Belfast. We've got to know them over the years. Our daughter spent some time on the bus with them a couple of seasons ago, and we count them as dear friends. I, I'm so thankful for their ministry, not just their friendship, and how they have um, served the church with theologically rich, gospel-centered, singable, congregational hymns for today. Uh, all packaged in an Irish fleur. What more do you want? Um, so, so thankful to be on the platform with them and pray God's blessing upon their ministry as they continue to serve Him. So uh, take your Bible and turn to Psalm 150. I've got two sessions today. I'm going to speak this morning on uh, worship, a matter of life and breath. And then this from Psalm 150. And then this afternoon, we hope you'll hang around. Uh, We're going to look at Psalm um, 103, show some gratitude. That wonderful Psalm, bless the Lord with all my soul. And we're going to charge you to just take in the, the panorama and panoply of God's goodness and mercy following you all the days of your life. I know our congregation's praying for this conference and its eternal impact. And I think I'm I'm ready and, and prepared. Reminds me, when I pastored in Toledo, Ohio for several years, one of our deacons came to me one day and said, Pastor, I saw a sign in a gun shop downtown Toledo I thought you'd like. I said, what did it say? He said, it said, treat your gun like you'd treat an Irishman. Always assume it's loaded. Um, well, I'm locked and loaded and ready to to, to, to pull the trigger. Let's take some time and read God's Word, Psalm 150. We have a little tradition at our church, if you would indulge me. We stand for the reading of God's Word, so why don't you stand as they did in Nehemiah 8 and uh, follow along. Psalm 150. Praise, praise the Lord. Hold on. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet, sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, you may be seated. Less than three weeks ago, I was sitting in the pilot's seat of a Boeing 787 Dreamliner in Heathrow Airport, London. The story behind the story is that uh, one of the men in our church happened to be the pilot that day. And so not only did he upgrade us to business class, great will his reward be in heaven. (laughs) He invited us up for five minutes into the cockpit. And I was sitting there on the pilot's seat, taking it all in. I'd actually worked in aerospace before going into the ministry. 
And as you can imagine, there was a bank of computers. There were switches and knobs everywhere. I mean, you wouldn't have known where to start. And I said to Kurt, I said, Kurt, how do you take this all in? He says, well, we do need to know what it's all for. But then he pulled down a screen above my head called the HUD, a heads-up display. And the HUD serves the pilots well because what it does is declutter the flight control panels. And they can set HUD to give them just kind of the main things, speed, altitude, pitch, roll, horizon. He told me that they use the HUD when they're taking off, some of the in-flight, but mostly taking off and landing because it keeps them focused, it helps them keep the big picture amidst all that's before them that could be so distracting that could take them away from the priorities of flight control and the basics of aviation. And the reason I tell you that story is because if we come to Psalm 150, Psalm 150 declutters worship. Psalm 150 declutters worship. It reduces worship down to its essential elements. It, it allows us to keep the the main things, the plain things. What we have here is a prioritizing of both the meaning and the means of worship. In fact, if you look at Psalm 150, you'll see that it answers four basic questions about worship. It answers the question, where? On earth and in heaven. It answers the basic question, why? God's mighty deeds and God's excellent greatness. It answers the question, how? With vocal and musical expression. And it answers the question, who? The participants in worship are all who have breath and life. So let's uh, open our Bibles and follow along as I exposit Psalm 150, a matter of life and breath. That's what worship is. If you're taking notes, here's my first thought. Number one, the modulation of worship. The modulation of worship. You see, in music, modulation is the transition from one note or one key to another. High to low, low to high. And in Psalm 150, the psalmist calls God's people to worship Him. In fact, God calls people to worship Him. There's a high key and there's a low key. The creation above in heaven must praise Him. The creatures below on earth must worship Him. If I put it about this way, Psalm 150 sets before us all round sound when it comes to worship. God is worshipped in His heavenly domain. God is worshipped in the creation below. I don't know if you've ever been in a soccer stadium or a sports stadium and witnessed there being part of the wave. It's kind of a fun experience and how that from one end of the stadium the wave starts and works its way around all of the stadium from one end to the other. This, there's this cascading euphoria. And in some ways, Psalm 150 is, is calling us to the wave where God is worshipped from one end of His creation to the next. And now let's break it down for a few moments. Let's look at the high key of God's heaven and the low key of God's earth. Or God's house, sorry. That's where worship ought to take place. The high key of God's heaven, the low key of God's house. 
Look at this call in verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise Him in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Focus on that phrase, mighty heavens, or His mighty expanse is how the NASB puts it. The anonymous writer of Psalm 150 speaks to the heavens in which God resides, where He exercises His kingly rule and His kingly power, and they are called to worship Him. Literally, the, in the firmament of His might. And you know the psalmist picks that up, doesn't he? In uh, Psalm 19, we're told what? The heavens declare God's glory and the firmament His handiwork. If you go back to Psalm 148, verse 1, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His hosts. Praise Him sun and moon. Praise Him all His shining stars. Praise Him in the highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. The moon that brightens our darkest night declares His glory. Amen? The stars that wink down to us from the evening sky declare His glory. The blazing sun that streams life and announces the new day declares His glory. The thunder and the lightning that rides in the back of a storm, God's fireworks display declares His glory. The angels that fly above His throne in a fly pass, tipping their wings to His honor declare His glory. The whole heavens and the heaven of heavens is one vast royal Albert Hall echoing to His worship and praise. Number two, the low key of God's house. The call to praise God in His sanctuary is clear. It's a clear reference to the temple on earth. God is not confined to the temple. Acts 17 reminds us God's not confined to anything that man has built with his own hands as if he needs something. But God had made a covenant with Abraham and the descendants of Abraham. God had made a covenant with the house of David. God had made a covenant to, to dwell on, on, on the city of Zion and in the, in, uh, on the, in the city of Jerusalem. And God calls His people to worship Him from there where the temple was built. God's dwelling place on earth. This is where God's people would find Him concentrated, dwelling, and they were to worship Him there. That's what we're told. Praise Him in His sanctuary. Any Jewish man or woman reading that text in their day would understand that very clearly. They would very much be aware of the unforgettable sights and signs of Solomon's temple. The lavish buildings, the elaborate ceremonies, the beautifully attired priests, the three annual festivals that they would journey to, the wonderful music, the, the combined and magnificent choirs, the structured services. That's what they were called to participate in. So here we have the modulation of worship in heaven and on earth. Although before we leave that thought about the sanctuary, how does that look for us in the New Testament? Let's just make that transition so that we understand that in Jesus' encounter with the woman at, in Samaria, He told her what? There'd come a day when... We won't go up to Jerusalem to worship Him. 
And, and Jesus knew that by His coming and through His work, both as priest and sacrifice, the center of gravity in terms of worship shifted from a place to a people. God no longer had a temple for His people under the Old Covenant. He had a people for His temple in the New Covenant. That's how the church is described, isn't it? In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 to 17. Think about this. That's how your body, your physical presence is described in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. You are now a walking, talking temple. And where your food is, is holy ground. And wherever you are, and whatever you're doing, can become an excuse and an expression for worshiping God. That's powerful. In Christ, the worship of God has been decentralized and democratized. We're not beholding to a priesthood. We don't go to a location necessarily. There isn't as much prescription under the new covenant as under the old covenant. For whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we do it to the glory of God. That's the sanctuary we need to think about. Our body, the gathered church. And high, as Spurgeon says, we now were the priestly mitre. Listen to what he said. He said this, speaking about an old saying, priestcraft is no better than witchcraft. Spurgeon said this, one grows indignant at the pretensions of a man to confer grace, to work regeneration, to forgive sins, and go so forth. Priestcraft limits God to the actions of men. It exalts itself, discredits Christ, deprives others of their daily bought privileges. When God saves a man by His matchless grace, He places upon His head the mitre of priestly status and the function, just as we are sons in the Eternal One, we are priests in the great high priest. And you think about that. Think about the liturgical language of the New Testament. That our bodies are described as a sacrifice in Romans 12. Our prayers are described as a sacrifice, an incense to God, Revelation 5, 8. Our money is described as a, swell, a sweet-smelling savor and sacrifice in Philippians 4, 14-18. Paul saw his work among the Gentiles as an offering to God. That's His evangelism, His witnessing. In Romans 15, 16, our good works are an expression of worship and liturgy. Hebrews 13, 16 as is our worship and the fruit of our lips. Hebrews 13, 15. That's powerful. It reminds us that, that worship is on all of us. Not a group of priests or pastors or professional musicians. We must exercise our priestly privileges wherever we go. Turning life into an act of adoration. We are not the audience on a Sunday morning. The pastors and worship leaders, the actors. No, along with the pastors and worship leaders, we as the congregation are the actors and God is the audience. You need to wear that priestly mitre. Wear it well. Wear it with style. Let it affect how you look on life so that you might fulfill Psalm 150. When I was a young Christian in Northern Ireland growing up, a pastor came in 
and preached at a conference I was at. And his message that day was, where is the glory of God today? And he did this magnificent exposition and he took us back in history to, to you know, Psalm 19. How the glory of God is put on display in the evening sky and the, the twinkling stars and the vastness of the universe. But then he brought us down to earth and he said, you know, there was a time when God's glory was seen around the tabernacle. It was manifest in the cloud and their pillar of fire. And then when Israel's wanderings was done, they constructed the temple and God's Shekinah glory, God's concentrated presence on earth was found there. Until Israel disappeared and the, 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 the glory departed and God rode Ichabod over the temple. But God wasn't done because we know when Jesus Christ came, we beheld His glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of truth and grace. Man, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat, man. And then he got to, but he says, where is the glory of God today? There's no temple. There's no tabernacle. And the incarnated Son has, a, has risen and ascended to the right hand of God. Where is the glory of God today? And then he dropped it. He said, it's in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Spirit of God who's the Spirit of Christ, who's the presence of God on earth, is indwelling you. That made me a different kind of police officer, walking the streets of North Belfast. That made me a different kind of aerospace engineer, where I realized that even building an aircraft can be an act of worship. That, 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 that put a shine and a significance on all aspects of life. Remember that. Think about that. Both as an individual Christian and as the corporate church. Where is the glory of God today in you? And the world's going to see God and His glory. They're going to see it through you. And how you roll and how you act and how you serve and how you respond. Number two, the motivation of worship. I want to move on. The motivation of worship. If you read this psalm, let's be honest, it's more emotion than reason. There's a lot of emotion in this psalm. Praise the Lord, praise God, praise Him, praise Him, praise Him, praise Him. But, but there are some reasons that are furnished for why you ought to praise Him. Where? In, in heaven and on earth. Why? We're, we're given two reasons and, and there, I want you to notice in verse 2, we have moved to this idea of reason. Because you'll notice the prepositions. In verse 1, the prepositions are in and on. That's the context of worship. Where does worship take place? In the throne room of God, in the expanse of heaven and on earth, especially among His people who are nigh housing the glory of God through the indwelling Holy Spirit. God, God the Holy Spirit doesn't haunt houses. He indwells you and me. And that's life-changing and life-transforming. That should rewrite our understanding of worship. But now we're moving on to for, the cause of worship. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according or for His excellent greatness. 
God is to be worshipped for who He is, His excellent greatness. And God is to be worshipped for what He has done, His mighty deeds. Our worship is to focus on two things, God's person and work. And now as New Testament Christians, we would add to that the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of the Father. We focus on the person and work of God through Jesus Christ as expressed in the work of the Holy Spirit. Worship is about beholding God's beauty. And worship is about marveling at God's wondrous works. Amen? Let's, let's delve into that. What I, the way I put it is, we're to worship God for His practical goodness, His mighty deeds, and we're to worship God for His personal greatness, the beauty and glory of who He is. So let's look at that. Praise Him for His mighty deeds, His mighty works, His, His works of creation, His works of providence, his works of salvation, His works of judgment. It's celebrated throughout the Bible and certainly in the Psalms. Just go back a few Psalms to Psalm 145 just as another example of what we're talking about. Psalm 145 and verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and declare your mighty acts. Look at verse 6. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. Scroll down to verse 11. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom. Tell of your power. Make known to the children of men your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. If you look at Psalm 147, you are confronted with the incessant activity of God through a torrent of verbs in what God does. Just look at that later. He builds up Jerusalem. He heals the brokenhearted. He determines the number of the stars. He lifts up the humble. He gives the beast their food. Just to name a few. Here's the point. The God we worship is not a deistic deity. He's not removed and unmoved by all that's going on on planet earth. God's not just a universal presence. He's a universal pressure. I like the way one writer put it. God's not just reigning in heaven, but a God working in this present world. A God who is not just a universal presence, but a universal pressure ever urging things and man on the further achievement. A God who is alive, active, and purposeful taking sides, doing His work. It's true. Didn't Jesus say of His Father, My Father works, and so do I. And the night comes when no man shall work. What do we read in Ephesians 1 verse 11? God is working all things after the counsel of His own will all the time. And we should praise Him for it in His acts of redemption and providence and protection and supply of our need. What a mighty moment when God stepped from behind the curtain of invisibility onto the stage of nothingness and spoke the universe into existence. What a mighty moment when God dipped His finger into the Red Sea and cut a path for the children of Israel to escape. 
What a mighty moment when God caught a spinning sun and stopped it in its axis as He did in the day of Joshua. What a mighty moment when God sang a lullaby and put those big cats to sleep in Daniel's den. What a mighty moment when God swept Babylon off the map and put Persia in its place because 100 years earlier, God had said that Cyrus would come and emancipate the beleaguered Jew. What a mighty moment when God became flesh in Christ, when the invisible God became visible, when the Ancient of Days was born in time, and He who was created all things was created a little lower than the angels. What a mighty moment when He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we marvelously might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Amen? What a wonderful thought. That He who had come from the bosom of the Father, beloved by God, was suspended on a cross between heaven and earth as though not belonging to either. What a mighty moment when He laid His cold body in the tomb, but up from the grave He arose with a mighty triumph over His foes. The mighty moments of God within history. And the church is called to celebrate those and anticipate that mighty moment, that moment when our blessed hope will be realized when our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, appears. I like the story of the the father who collected his son from junior church and asked him what Bible story he had heard. And he said, well, it was about Moses and the Israelites at the Red Sea. Let me tell you, Dad, the Israelites were trapped with the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army behind them. And the dad said, well, what happened? He says, Dad, well, Moses sent some tanks to the back of the line to just defend the people of Israel. Then he made a radio call to some ships out in the Gulf to send some airplanes to do some strikes. And they came, along with the tanks and the planes, they just obliterated the Egyptians. And then the helicopters came off the aircraft carriers and lifted the people of Israel to the other side of the Red Sea. His father looked at him and said, man, I don't remember that story. I said, Dad, if I told you what really happened, you wouldn't believe it. (laughs) And I think that's a challenge to you and me. Do we really believe the greatness of God? Are our services infused with a sense of His greatness? Do our songs celebrate Him? His glory, His Son, His gospel, His administration, His judgments, His providence within history. Let me say this, by the way. I want to add this as a footnote. God is great in the big things. We're called to celebrate that. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. God is great in the big things, but God is very great in the small things. He sees the sparrow fall. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He takes into account the widow's might. He catches our tears in a bottle. Very precious verse to my mother. God is great in the big things, but He's really great in the small things. I love that about God. We mustn't make the mistake of the lady who went to the great English expositor G. Campbell Morgan and said, you know what, Dr. Morgan, I only take the small things to God. I don't want to bother Him with the big things. 
To which the great man of God replied, Lady, everything you take to God is small. We need to remember that. Not only his practical goodness, what about his personal greatness? Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Literally, praise him for the muchness of his greatness. Praise him for the muchness of his greatness. God is without comparison, God is without comprehension. God is in a category all to Himself. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 50, you thought that I was, or God says through the psalmist, you thought that I was one like yourself. We do that all the time. We keep bringing God down. We keep domesticating God. Where we, we have no fear of Him where we no, we, we, we no longer tremble in His presence, where our minds no longer race in excitement at the thought of His glory and His grace. His arm is great in redemption, Psalm 77. His throne is great in administration, Psalm 135. His heart is great in compassion, Psalm 138. And His mind is great in perception, Psalm 147. Everything about God is great. In fact, if you go back to Psalm 145, verse 3, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Right now, if we gathered every evangelical theologian and put them in a room and give them a year to come and tell us a little bit more about God, they will only have dipped their toe in the ocean of what we understand to be the greatness of God. Because it's, it's unsearchable. And you know what? Here's the big takeaway as we move on. That means that we must be informed by that. God's majesty must inform our worship. You, you know this. You've heard it a million times, but we need to hear it again. Worship in the English comes from the old Anglo-Saxon worth-ship. At the heart of worship is a sense of the worth of God. The Hebrew term kavod, heavy, weighty, glorious. Gravity. Reverence ought to mark the moment of worship. A deep theology ought to inform the moment of worship. A real fear of God must guard the moment of worship. A sense of eternity must infuse the moment we worship God. I, I can't say it better than David Wells. Several years ago, he wrote a book called God in the Wasteland. Listen to these words. See if it doesn't challenge you and me. It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that He is ethereal, but rather that He has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He has lost His saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider Him less interesting than television. His commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence. His judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news and His truth less compelling than the advertisers. Sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. It's challenging. Come on. 
You can imagine in your mind's eye your church tomorrow, and I can imagine in mine and the weightlessness that sometimes marks our congregations. God doesn't sit heavily on their minds. The thought of God hasn't moved them for quite some time. In fact, they, they come late. They, they spend more time outside with a cup of coffee and a donut yakking to their friends. And I love that part of our church. But hey, it's 8.30. It's 10.30. The church has been called to worship on earth under elders and the preaching of God's Word and prayers and the breaking of bread and fellowship. Get in. Sit down. Shut up. Stand up. Sing. Stop looking around you. Stop fiddling. You're in the presence of a thrice holy God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Eternity hangs over our head. We come late. We come unprepared. We didn't read our Bibles. We didn't prepare our hearts. Hey, it's on the pastor. He's got to do some CPR today on me because I'm not feeling that good. We come late. We come unprepared. We're no sooner in the service than we're looking at the clock wondering when we're leaving. And as we leave with our families, we drop God off somewhere in the car lot. Is that not... The experience of many an evangelical. The weightlessness. Let's be challenged. Let's move on. We've looked at the modulation of worship. The high key of heaven and the low key of God's house on earth. We've looked at the motivation of worship. Why? Well, His person and work. His attributes and His actions. There's an intrinsic value to God in our worship and an extrinsic value to God in our worship. The intrinsic value is just God is glorious and beautiful and full of glory and that's enough grounds for worship. But yet, He has expressed all His attributes in actions and He has blessed us and loved us and cared for us and forgiven us. That's the extrinsic value. But there's a third thought, what I call the manifestation of worship. The manifestation of worship. Where, why, how. I'm going to kind of hop, skip, and jump. To tell you the truth, when I decided to preach Psalm 150, and I committed to that with Pastor Steve, when I went back over my notes, I realized I'd actually preached this sermon over three Sundays in our church. So this sermon originally was like 30 pages of notes. And I've been paring it down. I'm going to kind of hop, skip, and jump. Reminds me of the guy who stood up in front of a congregation and said, you know, I've studied myself full. I've got so much I want to share this morning. I don't know where to begin. And some old guy shouted from the back of the church, why don't you begin at the end? And so that's kind of the challenge I'm facing. But, but let's look at several things in terms of the manifestation of worship. How is God to be worshipped? Well, it's clear from verses 3 through 5, God is to be worshipped with human voices and musical instruments. In the passage before us, the psalmist assembles the combined choirs of heaven and earth, and now he adds an orchestra. How beautiful is that? Okay? Hey, you heavenly hosts, praise Him. God's people on earth and in His sanctuary, praise Him. 
So he has assembled the choir, and now he adds the orchestra. Praise him with the trumpet and the lute and the harp and the tambourine and dance and strings and pipe and cymbals, clashing cymbals. In the flow of the passage, a full range of musical expression is to be employed as an aid and augmentation to the worship of God. I just want you to notice some simple things here, because this is a complex issue, and I'm going to let uh, Keith and Kristen kind of get into the theology of music and, 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 and its boundaries within the life of the church. But just notice this. I think we can all agree on this. Wherever we land, we can all agree there is no discrimination in the use of musical instruments here. They're all being used. As James Lindbergh, an Old Testament scholar, says, the exact shapes and sounds of these instruments continue to be debated among specialists, but it's clear that all classes of instruments are taken up in praise, including wind, strings, and percussion. A couple of things about worship in terms of music as time allows us. If you're taking notes, number one, it's very clear here what I call the desirability of music and worship. I mean, th th this is timeless. It reaches up to heaven and it throws its arms around the earth. Everybody's included. Hey, I want you to worship God. No doubt, especially the redeemed who have enjoyed the mighty deed of His saving grace. But as you worship Him, as you vocalize your love for Him in the light of His love for you, I desire that you put that to music. It's clear that God sanctions the practice of music. God wants us to sing to Him. And you know what? Songs require music. God loves accompanied singing. We don't have time to go into these, but there are commands throughout the book of Psalms that will reinforce that. Psalm 68, verse 24 to 25. Psalm 98, verses 4 to 6. Psalm 149, verse 3. And here we are in Psalm 150. Hopefully you can get the CD and kind of work your way through some of those texts. The point is this. Music is not an enemy, but a friend to those who seek to worship God. The Bible echoes to the sound of music. Think about this. The human voice is lyrical. Music is just an extension of the human voice. Music is part of life. In God's common grace, if you read your Bible, it accompanies war, work, funerals, love, romance, play. It alleviates the depressed mind. Remember David playing music to Saul? And here we are in one of the canonical books. And, and you may know this, you may not, but both the Hebrew and Greek word for psalm is a song accompanied with stringed instruments. I've never quite understood the tradition in my wife's Scotland of singing the Psalms unaccompanied because the very word means accompanied with stringed instruments. But the point is this, the desirability of music in worship. In fact, I remember having a conversation with Keith Getty one day over the phone, I believe, or maybe we're in each other's company. We're discussing music. And Keith says something that day was pretty memorable, which is memorable in itself, Keith. Here's what he said to me, and I've never forgot it. 
He said, you know this, Philip, many Christians have a high view of redemption, but a low view of creation. It's a very insightful thought. I mulled it over. And what, what Keith was saying was, look, our love of the gospel, the, the marvelous grace of our loving Lord pushes us to appreciate God's special grace in the gospel. We get that. But we tend to overlook common grace. The expression of God's love in everyday things, even within a fallen world, God's love and kindness can be found in sights and signs in the world all around us. And from Keith's perspective, and he made a good argument, music, is it not one of the blessings in common grace? Why do we have such a low view of creation? And it was a challenging thought, and I think the psalmist would agree. Praise Him. Go and grab your instruments. Put the band together. Assemble the orchestra. Get the choir. Because God desires to be worshipped. He loves songs, and He loves songs accompanied with music. In fact, a few years ago, I was reading a really good book by Steve Nichols on Martin Luther, the Reformer. And in it, he has a quote from Martin Luther backing up what we're saying here. Here's what the great reformer said, Music is a gift and large ass of God, not a gift of man. It drives away the devil. It makes people happy. It induces one to forget all wrath, unchastity, arrogance, and all other vices. After theology, I accord to music the highest place and the greatest honor. The desirability of music and worship. I think of another thought here, what I call the diversity of music and worship. Look at the diversity of instruments. Strings, wind, percussion. You can imagine whatever combination they were, there was a variety of style. There was a variety of sound which enriched the people of God. That's the beauty of this text. Derek Kidner in his commentary in the Psalms says this, that, that these instruments could be used to produce music that is solemn or happy, percussive or melodic, gentle or strident. I agree. There's no doubt, whatever way this psalm played out, there was a diversity of music that came to it. And I would make this argument, I think Pastor Steve would make the same. When you look at the psalms, there is a genre of different psalms. There's lament psalms, which are solemn and reflective. There's celebratory psalms. There's royal psalms. There's enthronement psalms. There's thanksgiving psalms. They all have their own mood, don't they? They all have their own mood, and they all have their own style. And I think musicians will use music for that appropriate context, for that appropriate focus. You know what? At our church, we're blended. Not as a compromise. You know, that's the middle ground. We're just going to not take either sides on the worship wars fight. We're going to be blended. We'll just cop out. I didn't choose the blended style for that reason. I believe blended's biblical. Where you can sing the old and the new. Where the music can be quiet and subdued, triggering reflection, or noisy and rambunctious and strident, calling us to celebration. I, I think that's worth thinking through. 
You know, in Psalm, First Corinthians 14, the whole emphasis in First Corinthians 14 in the confusion of worship there in Corinth was Paul said, at least focus on that which is intelligent. He says, I'd rather speak in words that are known than thousands in tongues. He'd go on to say, let's do things in decency and order. And so I take from that that worship ought to be intelligible and intelligent. And you know what? If you think that out, if it's to be intelligible to people, different contexts and different cultures will have musical languages that I would thank God is enriched by and loves the diversity that comes from that. You don't want to be like the old guy reading about in Tennessee who went and bought himself a radio. He tuned it to WSM, which is the home of the old grand old Opry. He pulled off the knobs, threw them away, took the radio and placed it on top of the refrigerator so that nobody could reach it. What was the point? He's going to listen to one station. And there are Christians like that. And I think they're missing out on the richness of God's common grace and what it's like to worship God with every, out of every tongue and tribe and nation. Let me say this. What I call um, the design of music and worship, let me squeeze this in. I'd love to develop this, but I want to get to the dangers of music and worship and wrap this up. Let me just talk about the design of music and worship. Music is a functional art. It has artistic value in and of itself when God's come in grace and in the beauty of God's creation. But mostly it's there for usefulness. Music is employed in the service of God. Music is employed for the benefit of God's people. Music is employed for the satisfaction of God's heart. And mostly music is employed in the Psalms for the conveyance of theology and God's Word. Music is in the service of God's Word. Just look at Psalm 119 alone and you'll see that it's packaged from Aleph to Ta. Just from A to Z in the Hebrew alphabet. And, and it's a celebration of God's Word and what it does in the life of God's people. It's fullness. How it instructs us in righteousness. It reproves us. It comforts us. Psalm 119 would remind us that these psalms were written to convey thoughts about God. His attributes and His actions. His mighty deeds and the muchness of His greatness. That's why when you get to Colossians 3.16, I just preached on it recently, the connection between let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Singing. What does the Word of God produce? Singing. What is singing about? The Word of God that produced it. The Gospel. The great truths about God. The recording of His providence within history. Look, given that reality, music must never be allowed to dominate a worship service. It's in the service of the Word. It's secondary. It's a powerful vehicle in the delivery of ideas and thoughts and values. It makes theology and biblical truth vivid and memorable, and we thank God for that, but we must be on our guard. Our hymnody must produce theologians. That's why I said I'm so thankful for the Gettys. Theological. Gospel-centered, singable, 
congregational. That's what hymnody is about. Isn't that why Martin Luther said that music is the handmaiden of the Word? That's why if you read church history, John Wesley, it is said that if you take all of his hymns, he made a reference to every book in the Bible bar Naaman and Philemon. Do you know why Isaac Watts wrote his hymns? To accompany his sermons. The enemies of the Protestant Reformation said about Luther's hymns that our people are singing their way into Luther's theology. That's what good music does. Let me finish with what I call the danger of music and worship. Just a, just a little kind of um, caveat, a little balancing. Look, music's powerful. It was put on display last night and this morning. With a few notes, with the right combination of instruments, we can be transported in our mind to another time and place. We can get carried away, so to speak. Music has the ability to capture the mind, move the heart, stir the soul, affect the body. That's a fact. And that's wonderful on the upside. It's dangerous on the downside. Children sleep to it. Soldiers march to it. Crowds sway or swayed by it. Nations dance to it. It's a powerful medium. I was at the gym the other day listening to my iPod and I was listening to Gloria Estefan and that, her song, The Rhythm's Going to Get You. And it's a fact. Rhythms can get you. Music can capture you. And that's dangerous on two fronts, and I'll squeeze this in in a minute or two and wrap it up. Emotionalism. Emotionalism is a danger. Given what we've just said about this powerful medium used well in the service of God's Word and the unifying of God's people and the praise of God, wonderful gift within creation and common grace. But dangerous. Emotion has its place. Amen? The heart is always the best instrument by which to worship God. Make melody in your hearts unto the Lord. Ephesians 5.19 But while we are moved to worship and we are moved within worship, worship is without doubt an emotional experience, but there's danger there where the heart can govern the head. There must be a balance. We've got to worship God with all of our heart and all of our mind in balance, in unison, in equal proportion. Jesus said, I want you to worship me in spirit, which has got to include the idea of emotion and be moved on truth. Worship must always be both an emotional and volitional response to truth. Here's the point I want to get across. Worship is never to be undertaken with a subdued mind. Wasn't it Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who said this? We can become drunk on music. Music can have the effect of creating an emotional stir in which the mind is no longer functioning as it should and no longer discriminating. That's the point I want to make. Thank God for music. Thank God for Getty music and other of God's servants that bless the church. But we should never listen to music or sing mu with music with a subdued mind. Because the rhythm can get you. 
And before long, your heart is taking over your mind. And you're not thinking about what you're singing. I don't know if Keith ever heard this story. I did hear it several times when I pastored in Belfast. There was a story about a Pentecostal church that was, a, was having a worship service. And they, they get into such a lather and fervor in worshiping God that, that one brother broke out in a song and everybody joined him. And you know what the song was? He'll be coming round the mountain when he comes. That's true, Bill. And I think they knew they were in trouble when they got to I, I, yippee, yippee, I. And that's an extreme, extreme example. But it's a warning that the rhythm can get you. And that your heart can run ahead of your mind and truth gets left behind. Or even if you're singing a truthful song, you come away in love with the tune, not in love with the theme or the one being spoken about. Finally, exhibitionism. Is that not another danger? Exhibitionism. Worship is about God. But if we're not careful, it can become about us. Ironically, paradoxically, the worship of God can become a platform for human ego and exhibitionism. The great danger is in, the knee, is in drawing people to God in worship. We draw attention to ourselves. It's very real. Jesus saw it, didn't he? But the Pharisees, they loved to stand up and pray in the synagogues and on the street corner to be seen of men. How scary is that? What about Ananias and Sapphira? Who, who, who were disciplined by God. And if you understand the story, God didn't judge them because they withheld something. God judged them because they withheld something and pretended to give everything. They were making a show. And God said, not on my watch. What about the atrophies who loves the preeminence? It's a danger. It's a real danger. You've watched live TV before. Some reporter, you know, live TV and some guy, you know. We love to insert ourselves. And while that's an extreme example, that can happen. Maybe not physically, but that's what we often do if we're not careful in worship. We insert ourselves into something that's all about God. Bottom line, you can't make God big and yourself great at the same time. At its root, worship begins with debasement, humility. One of the great words of the Old Testament is prostration, falling down before God. It begins with debasement on our part and exaltation on His. Believe me, I'm speaking to myself. There's an intoxication with ministry sometimes. There's a real inherent danger. I always appreciated the old preachers at my home church in Belfast. Oh, God, we pray tonight that you'll hide the preacher behind the cross, that none may be seen but Jesus only. It's a good prayer. Of course God uses human instruments and human voices and human gifts. But oh, they need to be submitted, don't they, to Him? He must have 
the increase. I'll finish with this and pray. Corey Ten Boom was once asked if it was difficult for her to remain humble. She says, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey and everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments on the road and singing praises, do you think that for one moment it entered into the head of the donkey that that was for him? <laughs> then she added, if I can be the donkey upon which Jesus Christ rides in His glory, I will give Him all the praise and all the honor. Let Everything that hath breath, praise the Lord. Father, we thank you for our time in your word. Thank you for this conference. Thank you for the joy of knowing you. We give you praise for making yourself known in creation, in conscience, and through Jesus Christ. We revel this morning in your love and in your mercy. We exalt your Son. We lay low at your feet. We recognize that we are nothing apart from the grace of God and all that we have has been given. We recognize that you're worthy to be worshipped in and off yourself. Yet alongside that, we marvel at your works of creation and judgment and providence. Oh God, we realize our chief end is to worship you and enjoy you forever. And so as we've looked into your word and it has reminded us of the the, the, the where and the why and the how and the who of worship, may, may we hide it in our hearts that we may not sin against you. May the word of Christ dwell in us ritually, prompting, triggering songs accompanied by music. Songs that indeed glorify your Son and remind the world that this earth is not a playground for us. It is a theater a platform for God's glory. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.